Father, we confess to your holiness today and we receive your holiness and, and to be holy means to be unique. So no one offers us mercy and steadfast love like you do. And so for that, we stand in awe of who you are today and invite you to speak to us. Come Holy Spirit, move among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's okay to use your body in worship. If we teleported one of God's people from the first century into our worship gathering, they would think you were weird for not doing anything with your body. Okay? So it's okay to do that. Um, I found myself kind of in this posture today, just kind of laying at the feet of Jesus. So we're going to be in Romans 15 this morning. Romans chapter 15. No, Romans 5. Romans 5. New sermon from last service. Surprise. No. <laughs> Romans 5. Um, we're starting a new series today that I'm actually pretty excited about. It's called This is Good News. And here's where it comes from. It came from, um, I was on a silent retreat uh, at the end of February and working through a series that I was going to teach after Easter on telling others evangelism and really felt the Lord challenging me to evaluate, do we as a, a spiritual family, do we have a clear foundation of what the gospel is? Do we, do we really have a grasp on what the good news is? And so we're going to spend about the next six weeks, about the next six weeks, talking not about fasting, but about the good news and about how that shapes our living. I, I came across a quote this week, and it highlights just how important a basic understanding of the gospel is. And I was trying to find who first said it. It was hard to find. It feels like a whole bunch of people said it, so therefore, who knows? But the author kind of articulate this reality that, that first, the gospel is accepted. The gospel is accepted because it's clear. Then the gospel is assumed. Then the gospel is confused. Then the gospel is forgotten. The gospel is accepted, then it is assumed, then it is confused, and then it is forgotten. I have uh, been in and led in churches where the gospel is clear, clear as day. And it's being proclaimed, it's being demonstrated, and people are coming to know Jesus. There are new converts, things are happening because the gospel is clear. The good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is clear to everyone. Everybody gets it. But I've also been in these churches where, in some churches where the gospel is assumed. I, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, right? We're all, we're all Christians. Like we, we like the same things. We like the same Christian stuff. So, yeah, we, we, all, we all believe this, right? Yes, sure. And, and the way that you know the gospel is assumed is when the gospel is preached, there is offense because, well, of course we believe this. How could you tell us that we don't, right? So that's, that's, how, there's, that's how you know there's assumption. Then the gospel is confused. And boy, is this Christian Instagram right now because Christian Instagram is all about deconstructing and decolonizing faith, right? Um, does a good and loving God really want to send people to hell? Um, is Jesus really the only way? Abusive theology is when we insist on an orthodox, historic sexual ethic among God's people. Um, the gospel is 
and there's been multiple iterations of this in my teens. It was the emerging church. I mean, Steph's granddad raised money for, right, great-grandfather? Raised money for the United Methodist Church in the early 1900s, and the gospel confusion then was like, is there really a trinity, right? Like, is there Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And that was like the early 1900s. So the gospel moves from accepted to assumed to confused to confused and then to forgotten, right? We're still doing religious-y things in some, sec some segments or not, but it's forgotten. And, and the authors I read seem to indicate that this kind of is a generational move, right? So like, if you're someone who like, you have kids, if you're in that season, the gospel is clear to you, you need to work that the gospel is explicit to your kids and not just assumed that they understand it. Because if it's assumed for them, it will be confused for their children and forgotten by the time you have great-grandchildren, right? It's got to be explicit, which is why, by the way, one of the sermons in this will be about how do we make the gospel explicit in our homes, right? And the reason I'm saying homes is you don't have to be raising kids. You don't have to be parents. You can be great-grandparents. You can be great-grandparents. You can be step-parents. You can be single living with a roommate. How do we have a gospel culture at home, right, in our homes? What I want to do this morning is kind of plant a flag in faith, I want to plant a flag in faith and say, let's be a church where the gospel is explicit. I want to plant a flag in faith and say, let's be a church marked by an explicit and robust understanding of the gospel. I can do a better job of weaving an explicit gospel into my preaching. We can do a better job of integrating an explicit gospel and explicit good news into our ministries. We can do a better job across the board of more clearly proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of Jesus. So this morning, let's set out to be a church where the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and all those implications, let's set out to be a church where those implications of those things are clear to us and to our children and to our grandchildren and our neighbors and our friends and our workplaces. Why? Because we've said as much as it relies on us, we want to give every person in our neighborhood and networks, in our families and workplaces, an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That's why. So the gospel's got to be explicit. If we're going to proclaim and demonstrate it to everyone in those circles, if they're all going to have an opportunity, we've got to be clear. We can't assume, we can't confuse, we can't forget. We've got to be clear. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to make the gospel clear to us. I want to make the gospel clear this week. I want to make the gospel clear next week. I want to show you this trajectory of scripture that is all about the gospel. But to do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my high school biology class. Um, I never fell asleep in class in high school, and I didn't understand those of you who do, right? Because this is important. This is how you succeed in life. Why would you sleep through that? I had no understanding of that until 10th grade biology. Okay, so the room, I'm actually kind of looking at Jenna, because it was that one room, remember, it was all white, and I think the air condition, like the HVAC unit was in the ceiling. So it was always cool and crispy when it was hot, and it was always like warm and cozy when it was cold. We watched a lot of videos in that in that uh, setting, and I mean, he would turn down the lights and play a video, and I swear to you, I would wake up and like the bell would ring. I had no idea how it happened, and then it kind of unleashed this thing. I started falling asleep in other places because you kind of figure out, oh, I can kind of get by without it, and it'll be fine. Um, so I don't remember a lot of high school biology words like nucleotide cell, amino acid maybe, I don't know, but here's what I do remember.
I, I do remember deep me and bless the world, right? That God wants these, these things for us. And in fact, you see these things, the, these themes of relationship and responsibility, you see them on the first pages of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes humankind. He makes human beings. And it says this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, the Lord said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Verse 28 of Genesis 1 says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the animals on the ground. Genesis 1 tells us that God created us in a very specific way. He created us in his image. No other created being has that, right? Uh, there's angels, but they don't have God's image. There's like animals and fish. They don't have God's image. Humankind alone has God's image. It means that we have been created with the unique capacity to interact with God. We've been created with the, in, a unique capacity to interact with God. But that's not all. Not only have we been created so that we can have a relationship with God, he's created us so that we can rule and reign with him. Reign over the fish. That's what it means to be created in God's image. It means to be his representative and ruling and reigning. And so at the very first page of the Bible, we see a theme, relationship, responsibility. Fast forward to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 that kind of give us this picture of what heaven and forever will be like. And in Revelation 21, we read this. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Heaven will be good because we will dwell in an abiding relationship with God forever. Heaven will be good because we will dwell in an abiding relationship with God forever. But we won't just kind of abide and hang out and have nothing to do. In heaven, we are given sacred work. In Revelation 22, it says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. His name will be written on their foreheads. There will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. Now listen to this. And they will reign forever and ever. In Genesis, reign and rule and govern. In forever, reign with him. In fact, three times in the book of Revelation, we are called a kingdom of priests. We will spend eternity and experience it forever. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 3, here's what we know. We meet Adam and Eve, our first parents. Uh, they're created to dwell in relationship with God. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden where they are. Here's what the Garden of Eden is about. The Garden of Eden is about human flourishing in God's presence. Okay? They're safe, they are secure, they are satisfied in the presence of God. They walk with God in the cool of the day. And then something goes wrong. Adam and Eve are tempted. They fall into sin. And sin for them is going outside of their relationship with God for that security and safety and satisfaction. 
They go outside of that relationship with God for the security, safety, and satisfaction. And that lets into the world sin and suffering and sickness. Adam and Eve sin. The whole creation is put under a curse. And and the consequence of sin is that Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden and banished from God's presence. Genesis 3 says, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, and in so doing, they are exiled from God's presence, and every human you have ever met, apart from Jesus, remains in that same kind of exile We are enemies of God, is what scripture says. People that are far from Jesus in your life, they're well-intentioned, they're good people, but apart from Jesus, scripture says they're enemies of God. Because sin isn't just, um, oh, I broke the rules, too bad. Sin is rebellion, sin is wickedness, it is trespass, it is evil. Sin breaks relationship with God. And you know, a generation ago or a generation or two ago, you went to a priest and you confessed your sins and you received forgiveness. Now we go to a therapist, we confess our sins and they tell us it's not our fault. Right? Sin breaks the relationship that we were created to have as we go looking for safety and security and satisfaction in everything but the way that we were created to do. And so what's interesting is from that very first moment, God sets out to call us back into relationship with himself. I mean, he even sends Adam and Eve out of the garden wearing wearing clothing. They were naked and he clothes them. And he gives them the law so that they can be in relationship with him. The law gets a bad rap, but it really shows us how a sinful people can be in relationship with a, a holy God. He gives them prophets to help them know the will of the Lord, to kind of be the line judge and say, hey, you guys are coming out of covenant relationship here. You got to get back in. He gives them kings to order their life around flourishing and love of God. He gives them the law, but they keep disobeying. He gives them prophets and they're ignored, often stoned to death. He gives them kings and the people keep on rebelling. Uh, Jack has this little book. Um, It's the biggest story A to Z. There's a long version and then a short version. And the short version um, says they needed, this is the letter S, they needed a savior to make things right. Right? They needed, a, they needed a savior to make things right. And so we open to the page of the New Testament and Jesus steps into the scene. And if you ever wondered if God wanted to have a relationship with you, just remember at the very core of our faith is the God who draws near to us as he becomes like us. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus lives this perfect life, dies a sinful death and rises again. This is the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is God's chosen one, the chosen Messiah, the law fulfilled, the ultimate prophet, the king we've been waiting for, come to bring us back into relationship with God. He dies, rises again, and what he does, it makes it possible for us to return to what we were created to and have that forever. And Paul explores this in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, and starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, 
We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. Paul says we've been made right with God's We've been made right with God. That must have been we were meant we were wrong. It says we have peace with God. That means that at one point there must have been enmity. He said we're in a relationship where we stand, where it means we must have at one point been cowering. And all of this happens through Jesus, through his life and his death. Paul explains this in verses 6 through 9. He says when we were utterly helpless, Christ came just right time to die for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. Verse 9 says, And and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Paul says we were utterly helpless. It's not like before Jesus, you were a pretty nice person, and now you go to church, so now ding, 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 you've arrived. You are helpless. You are unable to restore a relationship with God on your own. The law of the Old Testament only really revealed that helplessness. And God shows his love for us in dying for us while we're still sinners, while we're still wretched, while we're still awful. Paul says maybe, just maybe, just maybe someone would trade their life for someone especially good. But God shows his love for us that he died while we were still sinners. And for the theologians in the room, this is what we call the penal substitutionary atonement. There's your fancy $20 word for the day. Penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Atonement. At one minute. It's how God makes us one with himself. Penal. It means that there was a penalty to pay and that Jesus paid it by being a substitute for us. He stands in our place right? Penal substitutionary atonement. The good news is that as sinful as we are, as broken as we are, we are restored to relationship with God through the blood of Jesus as he stands in our place as a sacrifice. So Paul says in verses 10 and 11, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus has made us friends of God. Do you notice he calls us friends with God twice, and he says that friendship is restored. It means we had it back then, and now he's made it possible for us to have it again now, and not just now, but for forever. Not only do we have friendship with God, not only is it a wonderful new relationship, in Romans 8, Paul says, our relationship with God is that of parent and child. He says, we have received God's spirit as he has adopted us as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. You know what Jack calls me? Not most wise father. Most good father. He says, Dada. Somebody taught him to call me Dad. I'm not approving of this. He calls me Dada. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus has opened for us with God. It is a friendship. 
It is a friendship like unto, but infinitely greater than marriage. I could recite to you all sorts of facts about Steph, but our marriage is not built on knowing facts. Our marriage is built on knowing, right? God is not interested in you just coming to church and knowing the facts and assenting and agreeing. If this sounds familiar, it's because I said it last weekend. God wants you to know him and to be known by him. He wants you to know him and be known by him. And this is good news. We can be friends with God again. We are adopted into his forever family. He has chosen to pour out his grace and mercy in us. We in our sins deserve death, but receive life through the resurrection of his son. We are invited to the table. We are invited into his presence because of what Jesus has done. This is good news. I'm going to borrow something another preacher does. Look at me. Look at me. This is good news. If this is boring to you, if this is boring to you, can I just invite you to reflect on why that is? It it may be basic. It may be simple. But it is essential to who we are. God has called us into relationship with himself. God has restored us to relationship with himself through the death of his son. Jesus' sacrifice ends our separation from God. It enables us to dwell in his presence. And through faith, we become friends with God and part of his family forever. Make sure you heard that word, through faith. Right? Jesus' invitation is that we trust him. Jesus' invitation is that we extend kind of our hearts and our souls and our whole being. He is who he said he is. And y'all, this is not a pie-in-the-sky reality. This is not, that's good for today, but I'm trying to live my real life. This good news either redefines everything about my life today or it's no good news at all. Because Dallas Willard says the goal of the gospel is getting into heaven before you die. This message isn't about, look at all the wonderful things we'll get to endure, you know, sometime in our 60s, 70s, or 80s, Lord willing, when like the Lord just takes us. It's no, this is the reality that we get to experience. I get to rejoice in this wonderful new relationship today because eternity is now in session. I am experiencing now a foretaste, a Sam's Club sampler of what my forever will be like of what my forever will be like. And y'all, like, if life feels like hell, I just invite you to look to Jesus. And here's how this gospel can can redefine our life today. It does it this way, because there are two, there are two essential questions. There are two essential questions that that burn in every human heart. And we're going to get to the second one next week. But the first one is this. Who am I? Who am I? Y'all, this question is rocking our culture right now. Like, if you're under the age of 18, like, in the room, or like, this is just, like, the question of your entire generation right now. And so you're, like, going on social media and, like, okay, I've got, like, I got, like, 18 likes on that picture. Let me delete it and see if I can put a different one on that gets me to 25 because that's, that's how I am. Our whole culture is being rocked by this question who am i and the reason it's deep inside every human being is it's an echo of eden adam and eve knew exactly who they were 
They knew exactly whose they were. And now outside of that garden and outside of that relationship and with sin still indwelling in us, we still wrestle with this question, who am I? I mean, a lot of us try to answer this question, who am I, through our performance. It's all about performance in our culture. It's about success. It's about achieving. It's about looking good. And if you aren't good, and if you aren't successful, it's about managing a social media image that makes you look that way. Right? We watch a documentary, Steph and I, on the college admission scandal in 2019. I think a lot of us forget about it because it was a few months before COVID. But remember like Lori Laughlin got arrested for paying some dude to send, get her kid into like a really fancy college. There's a really good documentary about it. And there's a college kind of success coach person that says like, the reality is the reason why the, like, the most wealthy kids in our nation still needed to spend extra money to get into the college that they wanted to get in is because we have this culture that defines achievement by which college we went to. When the dirty secret is we can get a good enough education at any of the 3,000 colleges and universities in the United States. Right, but there's this drive in 16, 17, and 18 year olds to get into the school. And like, they have these clips in that of like kids finding out that they didn't get in and like the bottom falls out. You know, I also think about, I think about like 17 and 18 year old, 19 year old gold Olympic gold medalists. Like, where do you go from there? Right, like you've, you've peaked and you've not even done a quarter of your life yet. Like, where do you go with that? And, and, and we come into church and it becomes about our religious performance. We come into church and it's an hour and the, not only am I wearing a metaphorical mask, now I get to wear a real mask. So nobody gets to really know what's going on inside of me. I got to perform to be this thing. And we use that to answer our question, who am I? We also answer that question through our pain. We define ourselves by our pain, by what is happening to us or what has happened to us, by something that happened in our childhood or in our young adulthood or even by the disease that we're carrying now, we define ourselves by our pain. I was a, I was a youth pastor for two and a half years and I felt like I was pastoring the cast of Glee. And, and what I mean by that is if you watch the show Glee, every character has like an identifying thing. Like it's the kid who, who has special needs and this kid who's gay and this is the girl that's a lesbian and this is the kid who does this and there's the jock and every one of my kids had a thing. And in our hyper-psychologized culture, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm bipolar. You know, my parents do this, this happened to me when I was a kid, da 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 da, da. There was the kid who once de described himself as having the affliction of smoking pot. I just want to clarify for all of us that smoking pot is not an affliction. It seems to be more of a choice. But the point was well taken, and we pastored him through that. We had a summer where every, every kid in our youth group just started doing weed. Please do not do that this summer, I will lose my mind okay no, no weed this summer or any summer okay well now I'm off track so anyway the point is every kid had this thing and if you didn't have a thing like oh well I'm the kid that doesn't eat ketchup because I need a thing right and, and here's what I've, I have found since leaving youth ministry behind that doesn't go away like we just define ourselves on our pain right this is who I am. This thing that happened to me is the sum total of who I am. 
So we identify ourselves based on performance and our pain, but we also do it on the basis of our passions. And most notably in this cultural moment by our politics, right? Uh, we are now living in a post-Christian America. If that's, I want to just let you know, Christianity is not the dominant way of thinking uh, in our culture anymore. I think that's a good thing, but now we are in a post-Christian America. We are in a post-religious America that is still very spiritual. And in a post-Christian, very spiritual America, there is a new religion in town, and it's called politics. And the mecca of our religion is Washington, D.C. And we have new priests, and we have new televangelists, and we even have new popes. Some of you love our current pope who resides in the Oval Office. Some of you wish eagerly for the return of the previous pope, right? But, it, but people are engaging in their politics with a religious fervor, and American Christians define their theology based on their politics, not the other way around. COVID has split churches across the nation so that you either go to a church without masks or you go to a church with masks. We've managed, bless you, to kind of walk a narrow road in the middle, right? But maybe it's not politics, maybe it's your family, maybe it's parenting, maybe it's the sports team you like, maybe it's your work. We define ourselves on the basis of our passions. And the problem with defining ourselves, of answering the who am I question with our, our performance or our pain or our passions is that none of those can bear the weight of a human soul. And so we strive and we work and we seek perfection and we start Instagram accounts sharing our story and we do and, and we just continue to feel empty. And the gospel offers us a different answer. The gospel offers us a different answer. In, in, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized and it says as he goes down to the water and comes. Um, I have loved Jesus ever since I was a little girl. Um, but I think for a long time, like, it was kind of exhausting because it felt like, you know, I had to love my neighbor and I had to not get angry and I had to do the right thing and say the right thing. And um, it, it was all about, you know, being in the church every time the doors were open because that's what good Christian people did. And um, I think as I started to realize that Jesus doesn't want my service, he wants me, um, that I really started to, like the gospel started to really feel like good news. Um, and so like the image came to mind of like in Revelation, it says, I stand at the door and knock. And I realized like Jesus is standing at the door and knocking and I'm leaving him outside, making a big fancy meal and cleaning my house trying to like make everything right but he's standing outside and all he wants is to sit with me he doesn't need my house to be clean he doesn't need me to have fancy clothes on he doesn't need me to look a certain way or to act a certain way he doesn't need cream puffs he just wants me and then what's crazy is like 
you know, all of this, like, loving my neighbor and being the good Christian, like, that just kind of feels so easy when it flows out of just being close to Jesus. And it's not me, like, trying to be the good person. It's just, like, me being totally in love with Jesus and a wackadoodle and, you know, being in my mess and him just taking me along for the ride. And it's been so good. So... Thanks, Randy, for sharing that. I have to tell you, earlier we were playing the video, but just the sound, and Jack was running around like, where's Miss Randy? Like, he couldn't find her. So anyway. Um, so here at Regen, we do response time because, as it says in Matthew 7, 24, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And I think today there's so much um, more even that Jesus is asking of us than just to, to build our house on the rock. He's asking us if we want to invite him in, if we want to have him be part of our lives, to be the center of who we are. And so my invitation during our time of silence um, this morning is... What's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus? Is your hope um, in your pain? Is your hope in your passions? Is your hope um, founded on anything other than Jesus? And so if so, what's keeping you from, from saying yes to him? If you're someone who's already said yes to Jesus, um, what is he inviting you to calibrate or to change in your life so that you can have more of him? What is, is it one of those things still standing in the way between you and him and from fully experiencing him? So we're going to take just a, a moment of silence here and, and then I'll pray for us. dear friends, those who are in this room and those who are joining us online. I pray, Father, for those who have walked with you for months or years or decades, that they would be encouraged and strengthened in their walk with you today, that they would accept your invitation and for more of you, Father. And God, for those I pray with the sound of my voice who have not yet chosen to follow you, I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of their heart that they would hear your invitation, that they would see you calling out to them, and that they would respond, that they would say, yes, Father. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to live and die and rise from the dead so that we can know you and be known by you, so that we can call daughters and sons, so you don't have to live as slaves to sin and to our pain any longer. And so we ask these things in your name. Before I move into communion, I also just want to invite you, if you need prayer today for anything physical, spiritual, emotional that's happening. Um, some of the oversight team and others will be in the Otterbein room um, after we're done receiving communion, and we'd love to pray with you.
Um, Holden staff, could you help me? 